0: How do you get excited about a document? A document is just a pile of paper and a pile of paper is not very exciting. But what if that document was the one thing that stood between you and getting paid? What if that document was the one thing that kept everybody's blood pressure down and prevented anything like rescission down the road after you're done with your deals? Well, anybody that's in the M&A space, anybody that's selling a business, buying a business or working with business owners to do just that is going to have to become familiar with the document that we're going to talk about today. It doesn't matter if you've seen if you've never seen one or if you've seen a thousand of them, you can always learn something more about this document. This document is essentially the life's blood of the deal. And so today we're going to talk about the purchase agreement and we're not going to just talk about it randomly We're going to bring in an actual subject matter expert We're going to bring in an attorney that has lots of experience in working with purchase agreements We're going to learn some things about the anatomy of the purchase agreement and about how they can be used when they should be used What your deal team should look like all those kinds of things. We're going to talk about that today So stay tuned and let's get right into the anatomy of a purchase agreement
1: Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us.
0: Okay, and today we have with us Matt Bowles. Matt is an attorney with Hogan Lovells, and he advises multinational companies on mergers, acquisitions, and general corporate matters. He's got a lot of experience. He's done all kinds of things from public company mergers, private acquisitions, dispositions, carve-outs, spinoffs, joint ventures, things like that. He's also corporate counsel on governance, securities laws, uh, general corporate, and commercial matters. He's exactly the kind of guy that we want to learn about purchase agreements from. So welcome, Matt, and thank you so much for offering to have a a chat with us today.
2: Thank you so much, David. Really excited to be here today, and I appreciate that warm welcome.
0: Now, you've got a very impressive bio. And every time I talk to you, which has been quite a bit lately, I'm more and more impressed. And I know that you are more than just an attorney who does M&A deals. Tell us a little bit about you so that our audience can get to know who they're listening to today.
2: Yeah, um, and you provided a great intro on my work life. Um, obviously outside of work, I'm uh, a busy dad of two boys. Um, we love spending time outdoors. You know, whether that's uh, going on jogs, uh, camping. Um, recently just got a uh, one of those burly bike trailers. Um, love pulling my my two little guys uh, behind the bike on that, and just getting out there and enjoying the weather, especially this this time of year.
0: And the weather is North Carolina weather. Is that right?
2: That's right. Beautiful North Carolina.
0: And you are, I believe, a UNC Chapel Hill grad.
2: That is right. Um, love me some Tar Heels. Um, you know, hopefully our basketball team can do a little bit better this year. Look at, looking forward to that.
0: You've also participated in something that has been very near and dear to me and my family uh, coming up. I just found out that you are also an Eagle Scout. So you, you've been a, like an overachiever pretty much your entire life. Is that, is that pretty true?
2: That's a fair statement. Yeah. Um, I am an Eagle Scout. Um, I think that's where, you know, partly my love of the outdoors comes from just experiencing that growing up, doing a lot of camping, a lot of trips around the country to experience our national and state parks.
0: For sure. I mean, you can't get that out of your bloodstream once it's in there. And so Matt, we've got a lot to cover today and it is kind of, it's almost a dry topic. I mean, it's a who wants to talk about a document, but what is the purchase and sale agreement and why is it something that we really should be excited about?
2: Yeah, well, we'll try to make it not so dry. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, the purchase agreement really is fundamental to the deal. It's it's the documentation, memorialization of the party's intent and and their agreement. Um so th- this comes up in every transaction. It's going to play a role. Um, it's going to be negotiated, and the parties, you know, at times things may get contentious, but at the end of the day, I think both sides are, are looking to do a deal and do something that's going to benefit them um, individually and mutually.
0: Do you think that the purchase agreement is something that adds to people's blood pressure or or helps to relieve the blood pressure and the tension in a deal? or a little mm-hmm. of both?
2: Could be both. Could be both. Yeah, I, I think that you know there can be some anxiety maybe leading up to the purchase agreement, particularly you know the the parties have had conversations leading up to that. They've agreed on price. They've agreed, you know, what's going to be sold, whether that's you know assets or an entire company. But then beyond the LOI stage, you know, uh, there may be a number of important things documented in LOI, and and in particular, I would recommend having attorneys participate in that process so we can help preempt some issues later on. But beyond the LOI stage, there, there's still a lot of detail to be worked out and, and, you know, risk to be allocated and terms to be considered. And that's what happens during the drafting and negotiation of a purchase agreement.
0: So can we get a deal done without a purchase
2: agreement? I would certainly not recommend it. Um, you know, there, under contract law which you know there's some there's a little bit of variation from state to state but as a general principle you and I could uh, make an agreement here today orally and and that could be an enforceable agreement there's evidentiary issues with perhaps proving that if if it's ever challenged that's why you know over over hundreds of years folks have have chosen to write things down and sign them
0: Yeah, so doing our own purchase agreement or trying to close a deal without a purchase agreement not a not a recommended course of action.
2: I would not recommend that. You know, don't don't if if you're looking to do a deal or you're advising someone. You know, I understand the audience is you know has a lot of sophisticated intermediaries and then others that maybe be be newer to this. You know, don't just pull a form off off the internet. Um, Don't just borrow your friend's form. You really should engage an experienced lawyer, in particular. Someone who does MA. Um, MA is a specialty. It's not just you know something that can be handled by a generalist lawyer. Um, so highly recommend uh seeking out someone who's who's done deals, particularly deals in, in your area of the, you know, deal valuation and, and sort of industries is, is helpful. Um and that's not just a self-serving comment. I think that's 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 based on you know, experience of, of seeing how these things play out um, in the real world.
0: You know, we've heard that uh, quite a bit. And I've said it myself in, in deals. We, we definitely want to have the right attorney at the table, not not uh, and nothing against Uncle Marv, but we don't want to have Uncle Marv in there who's like a, a divorce attorney, he's never done any M&A kind of experience. But we've all heard that. But why, Matt, what is what is it that makes a, an M&A attorney uh, different than Uncle Marv?
2: If you think about the purchase agreement as it exists today, it's really an evolution of you know hundreds thousands millions of negotiations over time right uh, the development of contract law and customs and and you know ways of dealing with um, negotiated items and and risk allocation so there's a lot of knowledge and precedent there and and having someone that understands those specific terms and and you know we'll walk through those when we get into the anatomy is is highly important to make sure you whether you're on the buy side or the sell side are protecting your client or your own self interest if you're the if you're the person that's buying or selling
0: Actually, you know, I kind of I would expand on that and say it's protecting our interest as intermediaries as well to make sure that the deal goes smoothly, that everything is clear. I get the sense that having a good purchase agreement is something that's good for us as well as for the buyer and the seller. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, intermediaries, you guys have a compensation structure that's based on, you know, you know, it's it's fee and commission based. It's, you know, is the deal going to sign and close and and that financial incentive is there for a reason right you know to to align interest and and get the deal across the line um, so having an attorney as a core member of the team a, a talented attorney um, is is highly uh, important for for really everyone including the intermediaries
0: and for the deal to stay closed now if you want to have intermediaries and attorneys working together, how do you see that relationship unfolding what what kind of relationship do you have with a with a good intermediary?
2: yeah so intermediaries and attorneys should be core core members of the t- same team you know everybody's everybody's on the same team working together now there's going to be specific areas that fall within the the legal purview and the attorney you know takes ownership of those and providing legal advice negotiating drafting agreements et cetera and then there's things that are more you know aligned with what what intermediaries, bankers, and brokers do, you know, fi- financial terms, advising the client on business issues. Um, you know, th- sometimes there's overlap between those two, but everybody should be working together. Um, so I think it's important for folks in the audience to, you know, establish good relationships with attorneys and, and really folks that hopefully they can continue to work through with throughout their careers.
0: So we've got a good team set up. We have the attorney at the table. We've got the intermediary at the table. I I, I I'll just throw out there that I I think the intermediary is usually the first contact with the seller. And there's usually a bit of relationship building that will happen before we ever get into the point where we have to start talking about the deal points and the, you know, with a buyer sitting across from us at the table. But uh, I would suggest that the intermediary also brings a great deal of soft value to the table. So we're not just an extra body in the room. There are, we're a good conduit to the client that we've been working with and we've built a trust relationship with. I think it, you know, every deal is different. Obviously there's, there's going to be different relationships in there, but I can tell you that as in my practice, uh, we make it a point to, you know, I would say set expectations early on so that when we get into the uh, difficult discussions around the purchase and sale agreement, everybody knows that it could get a little tense. And you know, when things do get a little tense, so I might be the guy that might be able to have an offline conversation with that seller and uh, kind of read the psychology of the deal a little bit and help to inform all the other parties at the table. What do you think about that?
2: Absolutely. You're the deal whisperer, David. So you, you're gonna going to be there... For your clients at the start, as you mentioned, that's often often how things play out, and and probably have the closest relationship. I mean, certainly, you know, I have a number of clients that I work with on repeat deals, and we have great relationships. Um, but other times, I, you know, I'm brought into to a new engagement, um, sometimes through intermediaries or, or brokers, um, and and there it may be a pre existing relationship there, and. Personality, I mean, as as you're touching on, is is so key to all of this. You know, everyone's got a different personality and a style of doing things, and if you can understand that and understand what's important to your clients, um, that's going to be of tremendous value um, in helping shepherd other folks to to align with those.
0: All excellent points. And I, I look at a purchase agreement. If I've, if I've ever looked at it for the very first time, it's a pretty complicated document. There's a lot of subsections and sub elements and they all have specific legal words. Now, our audience listening to this right now is everybody from the, you know, the, the basic, the very first person ever walk into an M&A deal, all the way up to those who have done, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, M&A transactions in the past. And so as we kind of break down the various sub elements of the purchase agreement, I wonder if you can help us understand it one from a basic definition perspective and then maybe one or two of the more advanced kind of tips or tricks or elements that are relative to each of the components or I guess what are we calling this the anatomy, the, the various body parts of this document. <laughs> so why don't we get started and take a look at Yeah, we've got
2: a great metaphor going with the anatomy, so we'll we'll run with that. I would recommend for for folks if they've if they've never read a purchase agreement from front to back to do so. I mean it's it's not light reading as you suggested, but you know if you're working in the space, if you're advising folks on m a you, you you should know how these things work. Um, so in keeping with our theme of the anatomy, um, let's just start and this I should say most purchase agreements follow a, a very standard layout e- even even for deals that are structured differently. you know you could have a merger transaction, two companies coming together. You could have a what we call a stock purchase or equity purchase um, where you're buying the equity of a company and then we'll own that company. Or you can have an asset purchase where um, you know obviously you're purchasing individual assets and not a legal entity. So even with those, th- there's going to be variation based on the structure, but there's a general format of these things and anatomy, if you will. So starting at the top, our key... Purchase and sale. What's what's being sold? What's being purchased? What are the economic terms? What's the price? Are there adjustments to those price? As as you well know, there's you know purchase price adjustments for cash, debt, uh, working capital, sometimes transaction expenses, um, and and those details are usually contained upfront in the agreement. You can also have things like deferred purchase price or earnouts. So. Maybe part of the consideration is going to be paid at closing, but additional consideration may be owed if certain metrics are met. So those, those sort of, of provisions are really the heart or the head of the anatomy, um, really, really essential to the deal. Those, those are things that, you know, the parties have negotiated up front largely um, and, and is core to the deal.
0: Let me ask you about that because now you, I think we always pretty much see that in the very beginning of the document, right? That's usually the first thing we run into is the uh, economic terms and adjustments and things like that. At what, um, how much of a role do we have in getting those deal points ironed out in advance of pulling out the pen and paper? Like, what kinds of things can we do as intermediaries to to tee that up, that conversation up, really well? Are we starting with the LOI? Or are we doing sort of LOI plus?
2: I think a number of these terms can be addressed in the LOI and, and even conversed with your client um prior to that um you know certainly the price what's what's the price going to be you know what's that valuation based on are there certain assumptions that go go along with that if you if you're negotiating the LOI and you still have quite a bit of diligence to do you know you want to to qualify if you're if you're the buyer that your your diligence is is your pricing is subject to that Um, details around, you know, working capital procedures associated with that. I think it's, it's less common to go into a whole lot of detail in that, the LOI partly because you want to get the LOI signed and agreed so, so that everyone's moving in one direction and you've got some assurance and, you know, sometimes an exclusive relationship to, to get to the purchase agreement. That said, you, you know, there may be parts that are important, such as what's the methodology of how working capital is going to be determined that m- may want to be discussed, if not at the LOI stage, then very, very soon after that. Um, certainly, if you're considering something like an earnout, you know, whether that's something proposed by the buyer or the seller, you know, that's often a concept proposed to help bridge valuation gaps um, that ought to be discussed upfront because that's a crucial economic term.
0: Yeah, Ryan Hurst was out talking with us in the last episode from RKL Business Consulting Services, and and one of the suggest we 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 went into depth on working capital. That's an episode you want to go back and listen to if you got questions about it. But and I'm not talking to you, Matt. I'm talking to our listener here. He also suggested having sort of a pre crafted model which shows what the methodology might be for for calculating working capital. Would you like to see that model before you really start putting pen to paper on the on the purchase agreement.
2: And, and Ryan did provide a great overview on that topic. I, I enjoyed that episode. Um, I think that that can be addressed, you know, it, it could be addressed at a number of stages. I, I, I agree with Ryan that it's better not to punt that to the very end of, of the deal. You, you don't want to be negotiating a, a key economic issue after everything else is settled. Um, so I, I, like to see that, you know, may, maybe touched on in the LOI and then certainly, running on a parallel track with the purchase agreement depending on who's drafting the purchase agreement you may even have those considerations and accounting principles and methodologies thought about and and you know take a position on those on 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 your side before you even share the purchase agreement with the other side
0: good point all right anything else we have to talk about with the first section purchase sale economic terms and adjustments
2: so that's the basic overview. I mean, I'm sure there, there could be examples and maybe we get into those, but yeah, we would next come to representations and warranties. So that often comes next in, in the layout of an agreement. And let's think of those as the bones in our anatomy. Um, you know, often these are the backbone or the structure, um, that's, that's supporting the what is being sold. So you know, sellers are making representations and warranties as to their ability and authority to enter into the transaction. You know, if you're selling a company, the capitalization table of the tra- of the company. If you're you know, if you're selling assets, what are the conditions? Are these assets you know free and clear of all liens? Representations are statements or promises about um, you know about things in in the deal. Um, and, and then you have differences there, you know, some are more fundamental than others. And that gets into how they're treated in terms of the party's recourse against each other, um, which we can touch on in a moment.
0: So we have this thing called reps and warranties, which is what you just described, which also kind of brings in this other term we hear a lot. It's a RWI, reps and warranties insurance.
2: The RWI, reps and warranties insurance Really comes into play in the in the recourse element and and maybe we we go ahead and touch on that um, since since the relationship's there but um so if you think of about a traditional agre- agreement that does not have reps and warranties insurance it's usually one or both of the parties providing indemnification to the other indemnification if their representations and warranties are breached or if their covenants are breached. They agree to indemnify the other party for damages that that party may suffer from that um and there's a whole lot of detail that goes along with that um you know in a traditional indemnity where you're not dealing with r w i there's baskets caps um you know different negotiated elements on survival of the representations and warranties um but i I like to think of the indemnification recourse section as as the white blood cells right like this is this comes into play after closing, but if there's disputes, um, you know they're, they're sort of like going after the the disease, if you will. Um,
0: you mentioned a, a couple of legal terms in there. I want to make sure that we're catching them. So you, yep. you you mentioned baskets and caps. What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so a basket is a not so fancy word for a deductible or basically a threshold of damage. That the indemnified party, the one that's seeking recourse against the other party, must demonstrate before it can actually recover against the the indemnifying party. So if if you have a seller who's made representations warranties to a buyer, the buyer suffered some kind of damage, let's say it's, you know a ten ten million dollar deal. Um, you may have a deductible in there of, you know, a few hundred thousand or, or maybe less um that the buyer must demonstrate first before they can make a claim. And there's and there's differences there. There's this what we call a tipping basket or non-tipping basket. And, you know, in, in the case of the tipping, if if the buyer demonstrates that its damages exceed the basket, then it can recover the full amount. It's just getting over that hurdle. Um, caps, of course, are the other end of the spectrum. So it's it's limiting the indemnifying party's obligation. So in our discussion about the seller and the buyer, the seller's indemnifying the buyer. So the seller's liability will be capped at a certain dollar amount.
0: So the basket is kind of like a deductible, right?
2: Exactly. Absorb exactly.
0: Before we go into the uh, insurance piece, and then the cap is, is the maximum that we can, we can recover based on that uh insurance.
2: Absolutely. And RWI, I mean it's its own topic. I mean frankly, we could have an entire podcast on that. Um but it's I would say it is very common in today's market to for that to be introduced in deals, uh, uh, you know, over a certain dollar amount. It has become very popular with both, you know, private equity buyers and and now more and more with strategic buyers wanting to um, or I should say sellers, um, wanting to limit the recourse that the buyer has against them. Um, I would say, you know, PE was, was sort of the pioneer in, in getting this to, to come forward because, you know, that they're, if, if they're on the sell side, they want to limit their, their post-closing obligations and be able to, you know, have the fund exit that business entirely.
0: As they so often are the pioneers in our, in our industry with the experimentation going on. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So we've got the, the head in the purchase sale, the economic terms adjustments. We've got the bones and the reps and warranties. And we did touch a little bit on the white blood cells, but uh, what else have we got in there?
2: Yeah, so we skipped over covenants. Um, covenants, you know, th- they can appear th- through various sections in the agreement, even some of the stuff we talked about at the outset with purchase price adjustments and earnouts. Those are covenants in nature. Um, but, you know, other covenants that we think of, confidentiality provisions, protecting, restricting abilities to disclose confidentiality. Um, if you have a delayed or separate sign and close where there's an interim period after you've signed the agreement before you close there are restrictions on the seller or the target company's ability to do certain things and there's also obligations to continue to perform in the ordinary co- course of business um, so the covenants I mean essentially just promises to do or not do something um, agreements to do or not do something um, and you know that that's the muscle in our anatomy right because they're they're doing the work or they're restricting, um, you know, certain actions.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. I love the fact that you made the connection there between covenants, which is really a legal term and the word promises, which I, which we pretty much all can relate to. It's really just a section about all the promises that are being made back and forth to to each of the parties. Is that, is that accurate?
2: That's right. Yep. Enforceable agreements, promises to do or not do something.
0: Awesome. What's next in our anatomy?
2: So let's talk about closing conditions. If you have a transaction that the parties anticipate needing, you know, some period of time between the time that they sign an agreement and close it, because there's certain conditions that need to be satisfied. For example, a really material customer contract consent maybe is so fundamental to doing the deal that the buyer will not close without that or you know regulatory conditions there's hsr and other things that may be in play depending on the size of the deal those must be satisfied before the deal can close um, and and i would say you know there some of these conditions can be waived by the by the party who is um, you know has the benefit of the condition if if everything else has been satisfied and there's a lingering condition the buyer or the seller may choose to sort of go forward with the deal um, but yeah the Another major organ in the anatomy, I don't know, choose your favorite other organ. Oh
0: yeah. Which one, which one is this one? Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, we can think of this one as the lungs. Um, It's, you know, it's it's really essential to, to the body, to doing the deal. You can't, you know, you can't live without breathing and um, you've obviously got cases of of waiver there, but um, these are another fundamental element of, of transactions.
0: All right. Now, you mentioned another legal term here that our listeners might not be familiar with. You mentioned HSR, which is actually not really a legal term, but it's a it's more of a um, a regulation. Um, describe for us HSR. Why is that important in this discussion?
2: Yeah, HSR stands for the Hart Scott Rodino Act. It's a U.S. federal law, um, and it's it's governing um, sort of antitrust one aspect of antitrust regimes in the United States, which it, principally, in in what I was discussing are the notification requirements to the federal agencies, usually the Department of Justice or FTC. Um, and you know, we have experts who specialize in antitrust law, and 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 they advise on these issues and, and take care of those filings. There's usually a threshold um, over which the notifications required, and the the agencies update that every year. I think it's around. Um, 111 million right now, but there, there can also be nuanced issues with, with how that's assessed. So it's always helpful to talk with an experienced uh, antitrust lawyer on those.
0: So for anyone getting involved with a deal that is $111 or anywhere near that, we're, we're starting to think about HSR and we're starting to think about the fact that we're going to have to report that to make sure that uh, we're not violating any antitrust laws by, by completing this transaction. Is that a, is that a pretty good summary?
2: yeah hundred and eleven million or, or right around there um and again there can be other factors in and sort of how that um value is computed so it's it's good to consult an expert on that but yeah if if you're anywhere sort of in that range those those issues can come into play
0: okay excellent what what else have we got in our body here?
2: Yeah, so we've talked about indemnification recourse. and then another concept is termination and and this one's most relevant in in the case of a separate sign and close. Um, so the parties have agreed and signed a, a purchase agreement. There are conditions that have to be satisfied before they're going to close. What happens if those are not satisfied or what happens if there's a material breach in the interim? Termination deals with that, um, and there there can be different consequences. You know, sometimes parties negotiate termination fees or payment of expenses based on certain criteria if, if agreements are terminated in certain ways. Often, you'll have what's called an outside date or an end date. Say you're anticipating a really long regulatory period before this closes, and maybe you know if if you think like three months, six months to a year, if it hasn't closed, then. It, you may choose the parties may choose to have an outside date there by which either of them can freely terminate the agreement.
0: And so we have this beast that we're calling signing close, or we're talking about um, multiple closings uh, type of thing where you're signing documents on one day, and then you're actually not completing the transaction down the road. So what are your thoughts about getting everybody paid before the uh, (laughs) the transaction is complete?
2: (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Um, you know certainly intermediaries i think you guys are used to to having that um come at the closing and again i think that incentive structure aligns with um with motivating uh efforts to move towards that um yeah i i, I mean i guess there's alternative fee structures I, I don't know that that's really something that um I, I can share a whole lot of thoughts on but i'm i'm sure there's creative ways to to deal with um those issues.
0: I think that's a show everybody, every intermediary would would listen to
2: and have on repeat
0: for a few times. All right. So we're not done with this creature yet. This, this purchase agreement, there's still a couple more sections in here, aren't there? What else we got?
2: Let's talk about miscellaneous provisions. You can call it miscellaneous general provisions. So a lot of agreements at the back will have sections dealing with, frankly, what most people call boilerplate provisions, but be careful with that word because these provisions can still be important, even though it just looks like it's copy and pasted from every other agreement. So examples include governing law, which which jurisdiction is governing the interpretation and and construction of the agreement. Um, I think we, you and I had discussed at one point. You know, Delaware is is, is a very common um, jurisdiction in in the M and A world, particularly on the merger side when you're dealing with uh, Delaware corporations, um, LLCs. So, and and that's due to historical facts. Um, you know, it just really early on developed a great, um, robust body of, of corporate law and has very experienced, uh, judiciary, uh, to opine on those really robust case law. Um, others could be, you know, you, the parties may choose to go to arbitration and if there's a dispute instead of going to courts, some parties prefer that. Um, you could probably have a whole <laughs> conversation on which is better. Um, and then you know things things as mundane as like notice sections, like how are the parties going to c- communicate uh, specific notices and r- things required and, under the agreement? Um, you know, as the email provider pro- pr- provided there. Um, so it's always important to have, frankly, have your lawyers look look at those and um, a-, a number of provisions. Th- then you have. You know, exhibits, there may be ancillary documents, transition services agreements, employment agreements that are agreed up front and are going to be signed at the closing table based on what forms were agreed up front. You have schedules, obviously, disclosure schedules, you know play an important part in the allocation of um, risk with respect to the reps and warranties, just to go back to reps and warranties for a bit. So you may have a statement. In the reps and warranties, you know this; these assets are free and cl- clear of all liens, except as set forth on the following schedule. And it's important to to list those out and and to understand those and the implications, whether you're on the buy or the sell side
0: and this is also where we'd see the asset schedule right where we were determining at what value we're placing each of the hard assets whether it's fair market value or book value or you know some other value that's agreed upon by both parties which takes us to the the filing with the state and the taxes and in some cases where we have uh securities being created in other words there's a promise made to pay over a over a period of time like um then we have the UCC filings, right? Does that fit in into where? Where do the UCC filings? Uh, the fact that somebody's got to do this, where does that fit mm-hmm. into the purchase agreement?
2: Yeah, so I assume you're talking about like a UCC termination statement. So to to remove a lien, um, usually if there's if there's debt on the Company or or if there's liens on the the company or the assets, there there will be a covenant, a pre-closing covenant for the seller to take action to have those removed, um, and that's usually done concurrently with the closing, you know, debt payoffs and, and removal of liens and, and those sorts of things happening then.
0: I, I typically see it in the uh, in the reverse when you're going to place a lien. So if you've got somebody that's coming in on a you know a, a two three four five million dollar deal. Um, and part of it is that there's seller financing. If there's going to be a note created. Then that note has to be perfected somehow, and typically that's the the filing of a UCC, a placing of a lien. And so, is that enumerated in the purchase agreement, or is that done outside of that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. If you have something like seller financing or a debt instrument that's secured, you would want to have provisions in the agreements that deal with um, the ability to perfect that security interest. And you're right. The UCC filing, filings are exactly how you do that in the United States.
0: All right. So did we cover the entire anatomy of the purchase agreement? And we got the definitions and everything? Are we missing anything?
2: That's our framework. I mean, there's certainly nuance with every deal, but you know, these are the basic provisions and there's a lot of potential complexity with them and, and various items we could discuss within each.
0: Okay, well, Matt, you and I talked about what our homework is for the segment two here going into it, and for our listener, I want you to think about you know we covered a lot of them, sort of the mundane the the definitions and things like that. I had fun with Matt just kind of uncovering that, but we 're in the next segment that when we come back we 're going to talk more about. Uh, not just the anatomy, we're actually going to get into some use cases and we're going to talk about um, how this uh, actually plays out in the real world. So if you want to, you know, hear some stories, some C stories about purchase agreements, then stay tuned. I think this is a great time to take a break and uh, we'll be gone for about a minute and a half. And when we come back, Matt and I are going to talk more about the anatomy of a purchase and sale agreement. This episode is brought to you by M&A Source. Formed in 1991 as a specialty section of the International Association of Business Intermediaries, our mission is in supporting and developing the highest standards of professionalism among our members. Our members enjoy two annual conferences, credentialing as mergers and acquisition professionals, best practices, networking, and deal sourcing for the lower middle market. We also bring you these podcasts for free. And behind our membership paywall, in-depth educational webinars brought to you by subject matter experts from around the world. As a member, you can take advantage of free and discounted services used by M&A professionals every day. These discounts and benefits can easily cover the price of your membership. We bring you virtual data rooms, research databases, E&O insurance, digital marketing services, valuation software, marketing and deal support, and more. You use these things in your practice anyway, so why not save some money? Becoming a professional member of the M&A Source or the International Business Brokers Association is easy. Just start with our website. It's linked for you in our show notes and have a look around. Ten minutes from now, you can be a member and taking advantage of all the benefits that membership gives you. I hope to personally see you at our spring or fall conference or earlier. If you'd like to contribute to our show, to our newsletter, or just leave a comment, the links are just one click away. They're in your show notes, so just scroll up and find the one that you like. Add your voice and perspective because your voice matters. Thank you for being a listener of our show now. Let's get back to our discussion. Okay, Matt, and we are back with Matt Bowles uh, from Hogan Lovell, and we're going to talk. Uh, really, the this is the this is where the rubber meets the road here. This is where the this is where the stories and the fun stuff happen around the purchase agreement. And Matt, I know you put some thought into this. We had some kind of pre-show, a little bit of discussion, but I don't really know where we're going to go with this. So, tee us up. What's going to be story number one?
2: Yeah, so you know, just to give you some examples of how purchase agreements play out in the real world and and what their benefit is, um, let's start by talking about a case I had a number of years ago. Um, I would say I was a, a mid-level attorney. Um, you know, I had done a number of deals, but um, you know, this was the first one that I was really uh, heavily involved in negotiating. So. I was representing a seller, a large strategic company, um, you know multinational corporation, and it was pursuing a carve out of a business that uh, you know it wanted to, a non-core business that it wanted to exit. We ran a process. we talked with you know a number of different buyers, ultimately selected one, which is a private equity firm. And then things got really interesting with that. I mean, you know, the the price was appealing to to our client, um, but but then you know once we got into negotiating the agreement, there was a ton of back and forth on the issues. I mean, th- this buyer wanted to pick at every little thing. I remember one example: we were negotiating, and, the, and they were they were making a big issue about the roof at one of the facilities being like completely dil- dilapidated in their view, and and you know we had we had not maintained it well, and and our guys, of course, were just like no, we're not going to give you a deduction for that. The buyer was asking for a purchase price deduction on that because they felt like they would have to do some repairs. Um, So various little things along the way, just to get to signing, um, hot feelings on both sides.
0: We got a buyer here who's trying to retrade now, right? They want to go back and renegotiate the the basic terms of the deal. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we 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 down selected them based on their price and other factors um and then they're they're just really picking at that price, you know, trying to nickel and dime every little thing. Um so it, you know, we have somewhat contentious negotiation as these things can go. You know, uh, on the one hand, M&A is is a zero sum game. You know, you, you get down to negotiating individual provisions, and there's an allocation of who's going to bear the risk, and and you know, one party is going to prevail on that, and the other is not. Um, on the other hand, you know, the reason I really like M and A is at the end of the day, the two parties are you know trying to work towards a mutual agreement where they're both going to have benefits. So. Um, we worked through that. We actually had a virtual uh, negotiation. This was pre-pandemic, which was sort of an unusual way to do things at that time. But it was it was forced upon us by travel restrictions. So we get the agreement signed. So so,
0: so what what stage of the deal is this at now? Just out of curiosity, did, did they wait till deal fatigue really set in, or is this like early on?
2: No, I mean I think it probably took a couple of you know maybe a couple of months between LOI and and actually getting to a, a signed agreement um, so we get the agreement signed separate signing close there's things that need to happen between signing and closing including you know the the buyer being being a PE firm that didn't have an existing business and it's purchasing assets and and a company you know a subsidiary from uh, a large corporation, you know, basically the PE firm is going to have to stand that up on its own and have have you know the systems and benefit plans in place and all of that that um, you know aren't going with the transaction. Um, so I think there was a lot of consternation over the the longer than expected period between sign and close and, and getting to that. But um, ultimately, obviously, got to closing. But then, then, then that's really where the action action came in again. Um, you know, the parties had had already had their history, you know worked through it, got got to, got to closing. Um, and then you know pursuant to the terms of the agreement, which we had negotiated, um, there was a dispute over working capital. Um, and it, ten- it that that one just drug out for for months and months more you know the buyer submitted their closing statement we contested it um our client the seller had had engaged a you know a big four firm to help out with that on the accounting side we were advising on the legal side um and it became very detailed i mean i remember looking at the the briefs that were put together and and, and helping with that process um to you know inform the it, w- it was an accounting arbitrator um and and Became very detailed, very contentious through that process, and ultimately, fortunately for our client, it it won basically every count, um, and and you know was not required to um, cut a bigger check as as the other guys were trying to to make happen, um, and actually was able to get um, get some money back from from the deal.
0: So, with the wisdom of twenty twenty hindsight, if you look back over that deal, what? Is there anything about the purchase and sale agreement that you would have done differently, knowing what you know today?
2: Not specifically. I mean, I know that a lot of work, because because the example I just talked about, the, where things came to a head, were were over the working capital. A lot of work went into you know refining the accounting principles and trying to understand working capital. This is a manufacturing business has a lot of inventory, a lot of whip. We knew you know from the outset that. Th- that working capital piece was was a big component of the overall value of the deal. So we we knew there were some risks there. Um, I think we had some tried and true uh, provisions in our agreement over over working capital that helped us um, in the actual dispute process a lot.
0: And just for clarification for listeners, when you, you you use the word "whip," there you're talking about work in progress.
2: Right? That's right. Yep.
0: Okay. All right. So in this story was kind of. Um, it seems that the purchase agreement did play a pretty pivotal role, and the only thing that comes to my mind is what may have happened if if we did something like that um, pre pre purchase and sale agreement model for working capital would that have reduced some of the friction in this deal
2: There was some of that work done i mean we you know we had discussions with the buyer over you know, different principles for, for how things were going to be treated um, in the working capital process. I think it was challenging when, you, when you've developed a, a target networking capital um, and the parties have agreed on that. And then that, that's, you know, in, in the purchase agreement at signing, and then you have a few months before a transaction closes. Inevitably, you may have swings there. And, um, and in this case, you know, potentially big swings um, at play.
0: Did you have intermediaries working on your team as part of this deal?
2: So our client you know had a pretty sophisticated corporate development um group, and I, I think they had some advisors definitely brought in the accounting advisors along the way um, and on the other side the the uh, buyer you know they had some of their own intermediary advisors,
0: okay. Interesting story. Uh, I know you've got uh, probably one or two more that have that you've that you've put some thought into. Um, Looking back, what questions do you think uh, on the first example that you just gave? What questions do you think we might ask ourselves when we start in a negotiation based on the lessons that you learned from that first use case?
2: Yeah, I mean, some of this goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? What can you do early in the process to anticipate issues, understand who the opposing party is, sort of what's important to them, um, things they may go after deal deal personalities, right? Um, How is that going to be managed in the process? Um, And I mean, inevitably you're going to have things to negotiate in an agreement. Things in hindsight that you may realize could have been done differently. You know, on the sell side, our one of our big interests was getting a clean break. You know, our client really wanted to exit this business and focus on other areas of its business, um, and I think we achieved that um, based on based on the agreements and and the lack of subsequent disputes. You know, there weren't claims for breaches of reps and warranties after the purchase purchase price adjustment.
0: Okay. So a couple of quick
2: rapid fire questions. How big was this deal? This one was around 30 million. So, you know, it's a lower middle market.
0: Okay. 30 million. And what did your deal team look like?
2: Yeah. Deal team consisted of Hogan levels representing the seller, uh, an- another accounting firm representing um, our client, um, And again, their corporate development department was, was instrumental in, in running the deal
0: and what was the timeline how much time did it take for you to work all through through all this
2: great question i mean from very start again we were on the sell side it's complicated carve out so we were probably having early discussions with them before they even went to market um oh and i should say yeah there there was a you know they they did market so there there definitely was an investment bank involved um and so we we went to market um I'd say you know that process probably took a couple of months. or I'd say maybe two or so months before that, getting prepared, getting the data rooms ready, negotiating NDAs with with parties. You know that was that was another big part of the process. We didn't even t- touch on that, David. But that can, you know, that's something you should you should build in, especially you know when you're div- dealing with more sophisticated parties. They may they may pick at NDAs uh, more than than other people's. You know, so, some people are just. Let me get beyond the teaser. Let me see the sim um, and are willing to sign things. But others, you know, w- want to haggle a little bit on the NDA. Um, so all told, you know, I would say probably a year, including the post-closing um, dispute.
0: And all goals were satisfied both sides of the table?
2: <laughs> I can't <laughs> see <laughs> Well, I can't speak for the buyer aside from I believe they may have already exited this business. I think they did quite well. So, um, you know, I'm sure everyone's happy in their own ways. They they maybe had some hard feelings along the way, but I imagine everyone's happy at this point.
0: All right. So that was what are we going to call that story? That was uh, not really a purchase agreement gone wrong because that really it seems like it was featured to help support this deal.
2: You know that, that's an example of deals that are that are challenging, but the the agreement did what it needed to do, right? Yeah. Um, it kind of covered off all the issues, and uh, you know our client was certainly pleased with the outcome.
0: So, how important do you think it is for anybody in this business to not only get familiar with purchase agreements, but you know spend some time, like we're doing here, and just kind of keep revisiting and expanding our knowledge about that particular document?
2: Great question certainly as a lawyer, continual knowledge learning is, is, is fundamental to our our profession. And you you get that both through experience, but, but reading and, and, you know, digesting um, developments in the law as, as they go. I think that's equally important for, for intermediaries, you know Um, the marketplace for deals evolves over time um, and, and deal terms may change to go back to, our discussion of RWI, you know, 20 plus years ago, that wasn't really a thing. Now it's a big thing in a lot of deals. Um, and that's really changed how agreements are negotiated. Um, you know, the diligence process, you know, you're bringing in the insurer as an additional outside party to do diligence and underwrite the transaction on the diligence done by the buyer. Um, So staying attuned to those sorts of developments, um, there's always creative solutions that lawyers and bankers, brokers, intermediaries are coming up with to help their clients get deals done, right? Um, And that's that's fun to see. I mean, you know, when you've done this for ten or more years, you you get to see you do a lot of different deals. You get to see a lot of ways to to solve problems and ultimately help your
0: client. Is there any other stories you'd like to share with us today?
2: Yeah, I can give you another example of maybe where, um, you know, unfortunately the deal didn't work out.
0: Let's hear hear that one. That's, that's always interesting too. Broken deals are some of the best educators. I mean, you, you learn more from a broken deal than you ever do from one that wins.
2: They really are. Um, You you do learn a lot from them and, and you see where provisions are, are tested again. So, in this transaction, our firm was brought in after the purchase agreement was signed. So, the the seller in this instance, again, this is on the sell side, had you know had used another law firm, brought us in partly based on our experience in the industry and, and doing these types of transactions. But they needed someone to renegotiate the agreement because they were having challenges with the buyer. The buyer. You know, it was a it was a highly financed transaction. The buyer was was struggling to come up with funds, and our, our client really wanted to to go through with the deal. Um, and so we we took multiple efforts to try to amend the agreement. You know, negotiate with the the buyer. What what terms can we accommodate here? Is, is there a solution we can get to um, so that this deal can close? Um, Ultimately, through through a lot of work on that, it just didn't work out. Both sides sort of geared up for litigation um, because because the agreement was already signed. So as the seller, we you know we had contractual rights to go go after the buyer if you know the closing conditions were satisfied. And uh, you know after pursuing that, the parties ultimately decided to settle and just just terminate the the transaction.
0: Oh, so it, did, it didn't go to court. You just settled. That's probably the majority of these. Um types of
2: yeah there were some preliminary you know litigation matters but ultimately ultimately so. so
0: was the purchase agreement basically the centerpiece of those discussions in the back and forth
2: yeah absolutely you know we were getting into arguments over were the conditions satisfied or not um, you know what what sort of rights do, do we as the seller have you know to pursue the, the termination fee and to and or to specifically, you know, require specific performance of the, of the deal.
0: Was that purchase agreement structured in a way that made your job easy in that litigation or were there things missing from that document that you wish you had seen?
2: Well, it's interesting because we were, we were in the position of, because we, we never ultimately got the amendment signed, right? Like we tried, we tried that route. Um, So we were, we were working in the confines of a previously negotiated and executed agreement. I mean, I think there were things about that agreement that followed this, the standard practice. And then there were other things that, you know, we maybe would have done differently if we were involved in the first place. Hmm.
0: Very interesting stories, both of them. And, And I really want to thank you for coming out here and spending some time with us. You've, I've learned a lot just listening to you in the last, uh, last few minutes, um, for the rest of our listeners, we have a code of ethics. In uh, anybody that's a member of Mergers, uh, M&A Source has uh, follows a code of ethics, and I've heard at least three of them that we touched on here. The first one's Article One, which talks about our endeavor to comply with all laws and all jurisdictions that we practice, and obviously bringing an attorney to the table and making sure that your documents are done right is a is a is a definite uh, way to to make sure that you were doing that. Uh, the second one is Article Three, and that is uh, really talks about concealment and and, uh, of pertinent facts related to the properties and the business transactions, avoiding misrepresentations and things like that. And based on what I've heard today, this purchase agreement certainly helps to make sure that all the um, uh, pertinent facts are revealed and that everything's been properly represented and there's nothing being concealed in a deal. And then the last one is Article 5, uh, which talks about really encouraging our customers to seek the services of qualified attorneys, accountants, and other professional advisors. And you heard Matt and I talking today a little bit about the difference between Uncle Marv and an actual qualified attorney that that can help you get your transactions done and how much easier our life is when we do bring an attorney in that has the requisite uh, training and skill set and the experience that we need to get the deals closed. So... Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the M&A Source and our code of ethics and some of the training that we offer, I would encourage you to go out to MASource.com or excuse me, MASource.org. We're a nonprofit national organization, not a commercial organization, and we and we exist to serve uh, intermediaries and basically raise the bar, elevate the status of our profession, uh, both in the United States and around and around the world. So. Matt, uh, where can you, where can we find you and Hogan Lovell if we want to connect with you after the show?
2: Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Um, Obviously we have a website, hoganlovells.com. My, my email, matthew.bowls at, hoganlevels.com
0: okay and we're going to make sure that your links uh, are all and your bio and everything is in the show notes so you can find them in the show notes if you want to go looking for matt and connect with him afterwards or or with hogan levels uh if matt you're going to be uh you're going to be down in charlotte in october
2: yeah i'm planning to go to the conference and i I heard you're going to be there too so looking forward to to meeting up and um you know continuing to to meet others at MA source
0: Yeah, I'll definitely be there. We're talking about October 15th through the 18th in Charlotte, North Carolina. And if you're interested in registering for that, again, masource.org is your source. Go out and click on it, find the events button and click the register. And we'd be happy to uh, meet you in person down in Charlotte. Matt and I will both be there. And uh, if you have any questions or you want to talk about Hogan Levels and all the great services that they provide, I'm sure Matt will be more than happy to talk with you. Uh, Matt, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Uh, I've learned a lot um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you down in Charlotte. Thanks so much for coming out today.
2: Thanks so much, David. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you for joining us for the MA Source podcast. If you would like to learn more about MA Source or would like to join, please visit MA Source's website www.masource.org where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences thanks again for joining and if you enjoyed the show we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe rate and leave a review join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast